You are listening to From the Trinity Pulpit, a podcast of Taproot Faith. This is Matt Joyner, and I am the host of Taproot Faith and the pastor of Trinity Reformed Episcopal Church in Mason, Ohio. If you're looking for a liturgical, biblical, gospel-centered, Christ-loving church and live in or are visiting the Cincinnati area, feel free to join us any Lord's Day. We would love to have you. And now, here's the sermon for this past Sunday. Be seated. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, open them up to our gospel reading for today, John chapter 10. With the combination of John 10 and the uh, Isaiah reading and the psalm we read this morning, you could very easily call this Sunday the Sunday of the Good Shepherd. And as I believe we should. And as we're looking at what it means that Christ is the good shepherd, we want to look, of course, as we always do, at the context of the gospel. If you go back, this context where Christ gives this good shepherd discourse, of which we only read liturgically a short snippet, goes all the way back to the beginning of chapter 9. This is the sixth sign in John's gospel. If you know anything about John's gospel... Miracles in John's gospel are called signs. That's the word that John chooses to use. Signs, not miracles, but signs. And signs point to something or they indicate something. And the signs that Christ performs in John's gospel is to indicate Christ's divinity, his power, his authority. All of these things are signs that point to those realities. And the sixth sign that he performed in chapter 9 is the healing of the man born blind. We all know the story. But going back even further, we talked a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks back rather, John chapter 8, where Jesus had the encounter with the Pharisees, where he said, you are the children of your father, the devil. Before Abraham was, I am. And they exploded and sought to kill him and to stone him right there on the spot. And he disappeared from among them into the crowd. This takes place immediately following that. Christ insults them to their face by calling them children of the devil. They pick up stones to throw at him. And then he disappears into the crowd and proceeds to begin to leave the temple. And as he is leaving the temple with them hot on his heels, he looks and sees the blind man sitting beside the gate and heals him. And when he heals him, they then bring this man before the Pharisees. Because they've already made a decision that anyone who confesses that Jesus is the Christ is going to be kicked out of the synagogue. They bring this man before the Pharisees and interrogate him. And after he confirms that Christ is who he says he is, they kick him out. Christ then goes and finds him, allows this man to worship him, and says, I came into the world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see. And those who do see or claim to see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked, We aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. This is the setup for what is to come in the Good Shepherd discourse. The image of a shepherd 
is something that was very, very well known to the people of the time. An agrarian society. And in fact, the hero of the Jewish people was a shepherd. The one that they were waiting to come was an image of their greatest shepherd. Who am I talking about? David. David, King David. And yet Jesus says, reminding us of the most frequently quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament, Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, right, as David, the Lord, Christ, said to my Lord, God, sit until I make all your enemies a footstool for your, for your feet. David called the one to come, Lord, God. And so Christ pointed out that he is greater than David. He already has said that he's greater than Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. He has already made himself greater than Moses and will continue to do so. But Christ, having healed the man born blind, having already called the Pharisees children of the devil to their face, which is always a great way to earn friends and influence people, he then proceeds to teach about what a real shepherd looks like. And there's a couple of things in the Old Testament that would have immediately gone to mind with these men when the word shepherd was used. The first was the psalm we read this morning. The Lord is my shepherd. How many of you all have ever seen, at Christmas time, it's a tradition in my house that we watch it because it's one of my favorite films. How many of you have seen The Bishop's Wife with Cary Grant? Whenever I hear the 23rd Psalm, I hear Cary Grant's voice. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? Telling the story to the little girl. Right? But we hear that. That would, have been, that would have been the first thing that their mind would have gone to. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. I lack for nothing. But the other one is Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, I believe where God calls down judgment upon the shepherds of Israel and tells them that they fleece the flock for their own good, for their own devices, that they lead the flocks astray, that they feed upon the fat of the flocks. They do not watch out for them. They do not keep the best interests of the flock at heart, but they are wicked, wicked shepherds. And that was the clergy of the day that God, through Ezekiel, was lambasting. He was going after the guys in my job back then. You shepherds, you clergy, you rulers in Israel, you don't care for the flock. You're not good shepherds. But Christ says, I am the good shepherd. Immediately when he says, you were blind, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. He then continues. It's part of the same sentence. Truly, I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. A little bit of background. In these days, and you can still see shepherding done this way in the Middle East today. There is a great communal fold a great communal pasture land where in the evenings all various herds and flocks were brought together. Various shepherds would bring their groups of sheep to come 
into a single fold at night. And there would be a gatekeeper hired to watch over them at night. And in the morning, the shepherds would come and they would come and the gatekeeper would let them in and the shepherd would call their own sheep to them. His relationship with his own sheep was such that he had named every one of them. He knew them all by name and they knew his voice. And when he came to this large area, this valley or this grass area that was walled off or hilled off, he would then call them by name and all of his sheep would hear his voice and come to him without the need for sheepdogs like we have today or any of that kind of thing. They would just come. But the one who would climb over the wall or over the gate at night would do so to fleece the sheep or even to kill the sheep for a meal. When we hear this, we think, well, that's strange. But no, livestock was money in those days. Wealth was considered in many parts of the world then by how much livestock you owned. So a sheep was like money in many ways. And he is telling them that you, you Pharisees, you who claim to be leaders in Israel, you who claim to be spiritual guides and shepherds, are really thieves and robbers who have climbed over the gate. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. That's another interesting difference between shepherding today and shepherding then. Now, as I've already said, we use dogs and we corral the sheep and they go a certain way and we rustle them into a pen. Back then, he would call their names, turn around and start walking. And the entire herd would follow him. He, the shepherd, was ahead of them, not behind them, coaxing them along. And Christ says the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd. The gatekeeper, who in this particular case is supposed to represent the father. The father opens the gate for the shepherd and the sheep hear his voice. Christ enters into the fold of the world where sheep of all different flocks have gathered together and intermingled. And he enters in and calls their name. What does that mean? That is what we call the effectual call of the gospel. When the gospel is preached, when the gospel is proclaimed to the world, when the work of Christ, when the kingdom of God is proclaimed, those who belong to Christ hear his voice in the preaching. And they come. They come. This is why Paul tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And how can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? This is why preaching is so important. I'm not tooting my own horn on that. But that's why preaching is so vital. And why in places where preaching has fallen by the wayside, we see a decline in the life of the church. But the voice of Christ goes forth and his own sheep, those who belong to him, those whom the Father has given him, Hear his voice and come to him. He knows them and they know him. 
They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. You know, I get a lot of flack sometimes for constantly calling out and telling people, you know, you shouldn't listen to this on this TV preacher, that TV preacher. You shouldn't watch Joel Osteen. You shouldn't read Joyce Meyer. You shouldn't do any of these kinds of things. I get a lot of flack for that. But the truth of the matter is that it is my job as a pastor to point out who the wolves are. That's my job. That's part of my job. John Calvin said that every pastor should have two voices, a voice to calm the sheep and a voice to scare off the wolves. I believe that. It's true. In fact, every shepherd, we see this notably when Bishop Peter is here, when he has that long curved stick that hangs right there, his crozier. It's in the shape of a shepherd's crook, right? That was for the sheep. But every shepherd would also have a rod. In the psalm, we, we said, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. His staff, his curved staff was to gather the sheep, to bring back a wayward one. That's why it's curved. But a rod is a bludgeon and it's used to fight off wolves and lions and bears. Oh my. That was the role. And Christ has the rod of the cross. And with the rod of the cross, he smashes the head of the dragon, the ultimate sheep eater. He crushes his head. But it is important for us as Christians, as the sheep of Christ, to understand who false shepherds are and who true ones are. To handle the truth enough that we understand when we see a counterfeit. Because the counterfeits are manifold in the world we live in. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Jesus said again, truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. He switches metaphors. He says, now I'm the gate. In this particular instance, he's pointing to another shepherding reality. At night, when the sheep would come in to the pasture, the shepherd would stand at the entrance with his rod and would stop every sheep as it came by, like a toll road. Like a toll road. He would stop the sheep, examine it to make sure it was okay and his, and then let it pass. We come in to the, to the family and to the fold of God by Christ's permission. That now wonderful and famous sermon by Alistair Begg where he, in heaven, they ask the thief on the cross, by, why, by what reasoning are you here? And the man says to the angel, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's it. I'm here because the man on the middle cross said I could come. I'm here because the shepherd raised his staff and allowed me to come in. He is the gate. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. All who came before me. Does he mean everybody? Does he mean Moses and David and all them? No. 
He's speaking in context to these people who were standing in front of him. You could see him in his, you could see it in your mind, him standing there pointing to them, saying, all these who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep, you didn't listen to them. You didn't listen to them. I'm the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and out and find pasture. A thief, as if the Pharisees needed any more reason not to like him. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. The shepherd's job is to give life to the sheep and not just existence, but abundance and life to the full. Christ comes to give us life and joy to the full. And that does not mean all the earthly blessings of life. That doesn't mean money coming out of my ears and constant health and kids that are always healthy and a marriage that's always dancing on roses and, you know, follow the yellow brick road, skipping all the way to Oz. No, but it is a life with abundance in grace, strength to endure. This week I was listening to some Easter hymns and uh, the same thing last week too, actually. I, I told Mary about this. I had a playlist going and I inexplicably heard the voice of Bill Gaither. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. You know him. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. The second verse, though, is one I hadn't sat and listened to for a while. Where it says, how sweet to hold a newborn baby and to feel the joy and love it brings. But sweeter still, the sweet assurance that child can face uncertain days because he lives. How sweeter still the sweet assurance that child can face uncertain days because he lives. That's the abundance of life. We can face all uncertain days because our shepherd lives. We can face all uncertain days because our shepherd has crushed the skull of the dragon with his rod. We can face uncertain days because Christ has drug that demon, that dragon, that one who belongs in the pit of hell before his father and thrown him down before the throne of God and said he is defeated now and forever. And I reign forever. And then finally we get into the section we read this morning. I am the good shepherd. This is one of the I am statements of Christ in the Gospels. Ego emi, I am the other one was in chapter 8. We already talked about that. When he said, I am, he's using the Old Testament phraseology that God used for self-disclosure from Moses. I am that I am. Yahweh, I am. I am the good shepherd. That good shepherd that David talked about in the 23rd Psalm, that's me. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he does not, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. 
The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. Christ, as the good shepherd, dwells with his sheep, lives with his sheep, abides with his sheep, and lays down his life for them. A good shepherd with the image of David, and we know this about the life of David. When he goes to battle Goliath and Saul tries to stop him, he says, I have battled bears and lions and wolves. I am not afraid of this Philistine. I am not afraid of this godless pagan. Because a shepherd lays down his life for a sheep, for his own sheep. But the hired hand, since he isn't the shepherd, the sheep don't, the sheep don't belong to him. He leaves and runs. You know, I've heard this many times used as, a, as an encouragement for pastors to say, you got to stick with it. Love your flock. But you know, here's the thing. Christ is the good shepherd. I'm not. I simply ask that you pray that I can be the best hireling I can be. Because I will fail you. I will fail you. I'm sure that you've been failed by pastors before. I'm sure that whoever comes after me when my time comes will fail you. Every human pastor will. But Christ says to us, he is the good shepherd and he never will. He will not fail us. He lays his life down for the sheep because he cares for the sheep. He cares for his own. He lays himself down for them. I am the good shepherd, he says in verse 14. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. He ties being the good shepherd in with knowing his Father. Isn't that interesting? Because this flock has been given to him by the Father. Later in John's gospel, actually all throughout John's gospel, he will refer to us who are found in Christ as those who have been given to him by the Father. If you are a Christian, if you are a blood-bought Christian, if you are in Christ, have faith in Christ, salvific faith in Christ, you are literally a gift from the Father to the Son. taken from the flock of humanity and given to the shepherd, this is yours. And at the last day, when the last judgment comes, Christ stands and holds up his flock and says, these are mine. Thank you, Father. That's why he ties in knowledge of the Father to knowledge of his flock. Because the Father gave them to him. Then he says, I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also. I've heard all kinds of really strange and interesting interpretations of that verse. I've even heard people say that this means that when Christ ascended into heaven, that he went to other planets and preached the gospel to aliens. I wish I was making that up. But what's he talking about? Is anybody in this room Jewish? Anybody in this room a Gentile? Okay, then that means he's talking about you. 
He's talking to Jews here. He's talking about the sheep pen of Israel. I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen, meaning ethnic Israel. I must, it's an imperative, I must bring them also. Christ's work is not completed or fulfilled until the promise made to Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him is fulfilled. And when he says there are others, other sheep that are not in the sheep pen, he means you and me. Those of us who are not of ethnic Israel. His expansion of the gospel and of the truth and of the covenant of God into the world to all peoples, nations, tribes, and tongues. That's what he means. To what end? And I'll end with this. They will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. One flock and one shepherd. When we recite the creed, as we did a few moments ago, what do we say? I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The word church in Greek is ekklesia. What does that word mean? It means gathering. One holy universal gathering of the sheep of God. Christ is the good shepherd who reigns over all. Christ is the good shepherd who tends the flock that his father has given him. Who leads it. There is no other head of the church but the shepherd, Jesus Christ. There is no other defender of the church but Christ, the shepherd of the flock. And he lives and reigns over us, feeding us, protecting us, guiding us, nurturing us, feeding us, and giving us all that we need. Until that day when we will be in his presence forever. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, (coughs) we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great shepherd and bishop of our souls. We thank you that in him, if we are found in him, we are a gift from you to him. We ask you that you would watch over us. We ask that the gospel of your grace would spread abroad through all the world. And that truly your voice would go out and call all of your sheep into your your one holy pasture. That you may enlighten the world with the gospel and with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask all of this in his name.